Father, as we turn to your word now, we will rely upon your Holy Spirit to illumine it. We will expect that the innate power in it will challenge us. And we would ask that you would help us to discipline ourselves to worship you with the act of listening with a submissive heart, tender hearts for your word, and that we would indeed be conforming to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus. It's what we want, Lord. Um, our, Our spirits are willing, but our flesh is weak. And so strengthen us in this journey, Lord. Strengthen us as a church. Strengthen us as families. Help us as individuals to be growing disciples, we pray, through the ministry of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if you uh, ever heard the story about the young guy who was a bachelor and he was really ready to have a wife. He had a problem, though. He, every girl that he dated and brought home, his mother couldn't stand her. And he was just really having a problem. And uh, hey, he brings some really great young ladies home, introduce them to his mom, really think and be optimistic that this is a relationship that could really have a future. And his mother was just unmercifully critical. So he was at his wit's end. He didn't know what to do about it. And he was talking to one of his buddies one day about this. And his friend offered him some advice. And he said, you know, it occurs to me, he said, that maybe what you need to do is you need to find someone who's just like your mother. And so he thought that was a pretty good idea. And so it was a while till he dated and again. And he finally found a girl. It was amazing. It was amazing. She looked like his mother. She walked like his mother. She talked like his mother. She, she had the same kind of laugh as his mother. She thought just like his mother thought. It was just great. And so he took her home. And uh, the next time he saw his buddy, his buddy said to him, so how did it go? He said, oh, man. He said, that was good advice. He said, he said my mom loved her. He said, but there's one problem. My dad couldn't stand her. <laughs> You know, our big question today is, what are you critical of? Maybe even a little more narrowed down in focus, of whom are you critical? You know how it is, don't you? That little wheels that turn inside and we're watching and we're observing and it happens a lot in the church. I wonder why that guy's doing that. Well, I wouldn't do that if I were them. And we have this little issue with criticism, don't we? In fact, it's probably more than a little issue. It's a big enough issue, this idea of criticism or being judgmental, that our Lord turns to this topic in His Sermon on the Mount. Let's turn there. It's Matthew chapter 7, please. It's verses 1 through 5. And I want, you, I want us to uh, spend a few minutes just studying God's Word and taking in our Lord's message to the crowds that day, uh, chiseled in the stone of Scripture for us, just as relevant today as the day as it was spoken Now let's read our text. It's Matthew chapter 7. It begins with verse 1. We're moving into a new chapter. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
Now, I'm reading the English Standard Version, the ESV. Some, um, you might have sliver, you might have the word plank, but notice the idea of the word picture here of something little and something big in the eyes. Why do you see the speck, verse 3 again, that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Interesting teaching from our Lord Jesus. Um, I wonder if there's a word that you notice that we have encountered already in this great Sermon on the Mount. One of the themes of the Sermon on the Mount is our Lord dealing with what? Hypocrisy. You've noticed that. When we pray, we're not to pray in such a way that we're an audience to the world around us, only to our Heavenly Father. Go pray in secret. Give in secret. Don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. All because why? Because of this great propensity that we have to let the flesh override the better judgment of the Spirit, and we end up doing things for all the wrong reasons, and we're hypocritical. And our Lord is coming back to the theme of hypocrisy. He despises hypocrisy. Interestingly enough, often the church and Christians are accused of being hypocrites, aren't they? It was a concern of our Lord that we not be hypocrites. I think it's a lot human nature to be hypocritical, don't you? Often people who accuse Christians in the church of being hypocrites are some of the biggest hypocrites themselves. But our Lord brings this theme through again in chapter 7. We've been talking about not being anxious. We've been talking about being bird watchers and, and learning to let our Heavenly Father meet our needs and that He takes care of these birds that are essentially meaningless and He cares for them. How much more will He care for you who are His children and He's your Father? And then all of a sudden He says, almost like out of the clear blue sky, judge not that you be not judged. We begin this morning, number one, with this statement. Jesus makes a statement, number one. Jesus makes a statement. The statement is, judge not that you be not judged. Don't judge one another. I want you to also notice that though the theme of hypocrisy has come back up, he's also referencing the fact, and he used the word several times in this passage, of don't judge your brother. So he's particularly talking about his people. He's talking about relationships in the body of Christ or the children of God that we are to guard against looking at other people and being critical or being judgmental. There is within us, would you agree, a fleshly bent to want to criticize others. And I think along with that fleshly bent is a little voice on the inside that when we notice what other people are doing without our approval, I see that Kevin Tucker wore his blue jeans with the hole in the knee today. <laughs> I don't understand that. Doesn't he know how to dress for church? We just have this bent, don't we? And it's like... and it, it, You better watch your judgment because... That's how you're going to be judged. And in fact, this is such an important point that you'll notice in the epistles it comes back up again. None more clearly than in James chapter 4. And let's turn there quickly. James chapter 4. And it is interesting to hear our Lord's teaching and to see how our, the teaching of Christ 
resurfaces in the writings of the the apostles and the disciples. And interestingly enough, it makes sense, doesn't it? If you hung out with Jesus three years and then the Holy Spirit begins to move in you and you're writing scripture, uh, of course, with your personality and with your mindset and the Holy Spirit brings the, the human vessel in with the leading of the Holy Spirit under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and scripture is written down, some of these themes are repeated. And these were repeated themes in the teaching ministry of our Lord Jesus as well. And it comes through in the writing of the epistles and, and in James uh, chapter 4, notice what he says here. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. It's like, who do you think you are? Are you the law? Are you the standard? You're the one that's, that's the plumb bob? You're the one that's telling everybody, you know, that's crooked, what straight looks like and so forth? He said, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You can go back to Matthew 7, but you can kind of paraphrase that passage. It's kind of like this. You need to stop judging because you're not God. And you're not the law. And you need to be worried about keeping the law yourself, God's law. And you need to be concerned about the fact that God is your judge and your job isn't to judge everybody around you. So here's the statement. Number one, Jesus makes the statement, don't judge. And I want to make clear, though, as he makes the statement that you don't think that this overrides other teachings of Scripture that calls for spiritual discernment. Ah, now we've got a tension in the Christian life. You ever notice how the Christian life's full of tension? All kinds of things that come into play. Well, should I do this or should I do this? And you better have the Word of God, the leading of the Holy Spirit, and just a confidence in walking with the Lord to do His will. What do I mean by this? Well, we have numerous examples in Scripture, even in the context where we are today, that we are to judge. For example, you're back in Matthew chapter 7. Look at the very next verse. It's a puzzling verse. It probably does fit with the first five verses. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. It's kind of like a proverb. And it talks about dogs and hogs and things that are precious. Now, you have to decide who's a dog and who's a hog. That's judging, isn't it? That's judging. Um, look what it says in verse uh, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes and figs from thistles? So forth and so on. You'll recognize them by their fruits. That's judging, isn't it? So we have to have some level of discernment. So what Jesus is teaching here, I think, is in the context of his teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, is first and foremost, I think, addressed to the Pharisees. Remember, as we have this great crowd of people gathered around Jesus in the sermon, it's like these lurking coyotes in the shadows are the Pharisees watching and listening and criticizing. And one of the things that Jesus does throughout his teaching ministry is he pokes the Pharisees in the eye over and over again. 
And so he's there teaching and he can see them and he can see them watching the crowd and people who are listening to him and want to obey him and want to walk with him. And the Pharisees are thinking to themselves, we're so glad we're not like these people. And so Jesus can't just moves to the direction of judge not lest you be judged. And he, judged. and he makes this statement. And so first and foremost in the context, I think he's speaking to the Pharisees. These people who, who made their bread and butter by criticizing other people and elevating themselves. And after all, I think when we apply this passage to ourselves, don't we think when we're judging others, like the blue jeans with the hole in the knee, like the way somebody else's kids are acting today, like the way that lady is dressed today, um, the kind of home that they live in, I'll bet they've run up their credit card debt. It's none of your business. And, and what's happening to us as we make these judgments is the little voice inside is saying, and I would never do that. And pride wells up and self-righteousness. And now we are kissing cousins to the Pharisees. And so our Lord makes this statement that is so powerful. I, I do think before we move off it, though, let me just give you two out of what could be 200 um, biblical examples of appropriate discernment and judgment calls. Appropriate discernment and judgment that is biblical. OK, biblical examples of discernment and appropriate judgment. Um, we have it throughout the scripture as we just saw in Matthew 7. But in our New Testament, let's look at just two illustrations quickly, and I think you'll find it helpful to just kind of think this through as you ponder it on your commute later this week. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, you know when we turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, the author is the Apostle Paul. We know that a church has been started there. We know that they've had multiple teachers and pastors, Apollos and Cephas, Paul, Peter, Paul is taught, and there's schism in the body. We know that the church at Corinth is a mess. If you want an example of a messed up church, it's the church at Corinth. Now, you have to remember, though, they haven't been, they haven't been under this New Testament teaching for all that long. Christ hasn't been risen from the grave and ascended into heaven, and the Holy Spirit down at Pentecost and the church planting movement started all that many months or years at this point, and so they have growing pains and they've had different teachers and different pastors. And now they have a problem in the church. And the Apostle Paul hears about the problems. And he writes the letter, the letter of 1 Corinthians where he answers questions that we don't have the question. We have all the answers. And in chapter 5, we have this most interesting situation where a man is living with his father's wife. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans for a man has his father's wife. So the point that Paul's making, he's reminding them that in Corinth, which was a, a sex-soaked city, that even in that culture, it was unacceptable among those pagans for a guy to move in on his father's wife, no doubt his stepmother, not his biological mother. This guy's dad has evidently remarried and, and uh, the adult son has moved in on this situation. Now, the church at Corinth 
sees them and they keep coming to church. And evidently the dad still comes to church. He sits on this side and the guy with his wife sits on this side. And look what it says in verse two. It says, and you are arrogant. You're proud. What are they proud of? I'll tell you what they're proud of. They're proud that they are a grace filled church. Welcome sinners. We do not judge at this church. Everyone is welcome. And grace is rich and deep here. And Paul says, God forbid. Look what he says. Ought you not rather to mourn? Instead of being happy about what a great church you are and that everybody's welcome and that you look the other way on sin and that grace covers all sin. And it does, doesn't it? Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, verse 3, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment, there's our word, judgment on the one who did such a thing. Biblical example number one of discernment and appropriate judgment is number one, when sin is obvious. When sin is obvious. We never look the other way on sin. Now, there's an appropriate way to deal with sin. We'll see a little bit of that at the end in Galatians 6.1, but it's not that we're not to make judgment. It's there's this balance, isn't there, of what is my business in your life and me pretending to be God and looking down my nose at you in some haughty, arrogant manner where I'm critical of your life and critical of your clothes and critical of your kids and critical of your choices and critical of all these different things when it's none of my business and God is the judge and you will answer to God, you will not answer to me. But I have a complete obligation when I have a brother or sister who's in sin to deal with that sin and to help them and to pull them out of the mire and help them get restored. So I am to be discerning and judgmental in an appropriate way when sin is obvious. One more, and I really like this one. It's a really fun situation to kind of picture in your mind. We don't have that many details, but it's in Galatians chapter 2. Just over a few pages from 1 Corinthians to Galatians, another letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. This time he wrote it to the, to the Galatian believers, to the, who, people who lived at Galatia, a city. And here's the thing that was happening at Galatians, okay? So in chapter 1, Paul clearly says, look, don't let anybody come into your church and tell you that there is any other gospel than salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, period. Even if an angel, Galatians 1.6, comes from heaven and tells you that there's a different gospel, don't believe that angel. It's not true. It reminds us of certain religions today where an, an angel named Moroni came and gave them a whole new gospel. In Galatians 1.6, Paul said, don't even go there. That's not right. But here's what their issue was. Again, they hadn't been saved all that long. Most of them were Jewish people. They were Hebrew believers. And most of them, their great-granddaddy, their granddaddy, their daddy, and them when they were little had grown up underneath the system of the Old Testament sacrifice and law and feasts and holy calendar and the, and the, the religious calendar. And so they kept the feasts. They did uh, sacrifices 
sheep and goats and calves and pigeons and grain offerings and and burnt offerings and they kept the calendar and they kept the feasts and they loved this stuff and they celebrated it and guess what it, it made them feel really good about themselves when they did those sacrifices and they saw the blood flow it was real it was right there it wasn't this imaginary faith stuff Well, now Jesus has come in and he's died on the cross and salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And it's all spiritual. It's it's what I meant by imaginary faith stuff. I didn't mean it's fake. I mean, it's intangible. It's a spiritual reality. We're positioned in the heavenlies in a spiritual, meaningful way through the work and finished and accomplished work of Christ on the cross when he substituted in for us and was the final, ultimate atoning sacrifice for sin, period, You don't have to slaughter calves anymore. You don't have to go sprinkle the blood of a pigeon around anymore. You don't have to do a grain offering anymore or pour water out as a a given over offering and complete utter offering, a drink offering. You just look to God through Christ by faith, receiving his finished work. But the Galatians had gone back under the law. The, The Galatians had been bewitched. Paul said, they've been hoodwinked. You've been drawn back into the old system. Who told you to do this? And what it is, is our fleshly tendency to want to have ritual and tradition and and to have a system whereby I have a tangible, touchable religion and it feels right to me. And we just did this offering and we just did this feast and I can tell that I'm atoned for now. No, you're atoned for because Jesus Christ came and died on the cross and shed his blood once and for all. And it's over. And he's now our Sabbath rest. And there's no day that's more important than any other day, Paul said. And you just, we have this freedom in Christ and it is grace-based. And here's what happened. Chapter 2, verse 11, between Paul, the apostle, and Peter, the apostle. I mean, these guys would have their heads chiseled in the Mount Rushmore of the New Testament, right? These are as big as it gets. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. I think Paul is judging Peter. Why? For before certain men came from James... He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically, there's our key word, along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Here's what was happening. Peter and Paul and a bunch of guys had got together and they were enjoying pork barbecue sandwiches. They were putting coleslaw on top of it. And they were just enjoying this stuff. And all of a sudden, a bunch of Jewish guys who were of the sect of the circumcision, they still really believed that they were really struggling to separate. They were really a, a, just a narrow bunch of people who were keeping the old, some of the Old Testament law and bringing it over. They came from James, and Peter's over here at a picnic table eating a big old pork sandwich, which is off limits to the circumcision party. And they show up, and Peter jumps up, brushes his hands off, and gets over here and acts like he hasn't been eating any pork. And Paul sees the whole thing. And it disgusted him. 
It's like, Peter, what are you doing? You're, you're confusing everybody here, acting, da- dancing this jig around all this stuff. And so in front of everybody, the Apostle Paul straightens out Peter. He said, if you're going to act like a Jew, you can't have the Gentiles and you can't, you can't have it both ways. And you're teaching them to do this and do that. And it's going back and forth and you're, you're a mess. And you're a hypocrite, Paul said. And he's judging him. Why? Here's the key word. Look what it says. Verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I got after them. Second of probably 20 illustrations we could bring out of the New Testament. And our final illustration, and we must move on. Second biblical example of how discernment and appropriate judgment looks in the body of Christ. Number one, Corinthian, in, in the Corinthian church, when sin is obvious. Number two, when the gospel is being compromised. When the gospel is compromised. Then you wail away with a ball bat. And um, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about a self-righteous spirit. Let's go back to Matthew 7 and let's finish up our message here and receive from our Lord the teaching. So the first thing Jesus does is he first thing Jesus does is he makes a statement that is judge not. And by the way, isn't that like the most misquoted, misused, but most often quoted verse of people who don't know beans from buckshot about the Bible or Jesus or church? Judge not Lest you be judged, or then they mix it up. Judge, you can't judge me. The Bible says not to judge. Yeah, but you don't understand what you're talking about. And what they mean is, you have no business telling me about my sin. And now, we do have to be careful that we're not guilty of the rest of the passage because it is based on a, hypocr- on, on a hypo- hypocritical standard. The second thing Jesus does is sets a standard. Number two, Jesus sets a standard. First of all, he makes a statement. Then he sets a standard. And the standard is the boomerang effect. It's the boomerang effect. Look what he says. Verse two. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Interesting, isn't it? So there is a spiritual principle that God keeps track of us and he watches us. And the way I judge other people is how judgment's going to work out in my life in a lot of different forms. That's interesting. Let's get a biblical illustration of this. Let's go to the Old Testament to 2 Samuel chapter 14. This is a great story. It's an easy story to follow and understand. And I think you'll see a little bit more what I'm talking about. You could ask yourself this question. Would I really want God to judge me based upon the same way I judge others? No, we got to deal with God and it's all grace, right? But I don't like the way those people are doing and they they should change. And we're kind of harsh. We have a harshness in our criticism sometimes, don't we? Did you ever notice how sometimes the the things you're most critical of are things that you're very guilty of yourself? Or things that you're guilty of that other people have act, or excuse me, things that you are critical of and judgmental of that other people have lived out or acted out are things that you're guilty of, of imagining out. I would never do that. 
Yeah, but there's a part of your flesh that longs to do that. You just haven't acted upon it. And there's a duplicity in us, isn't there? How does this standard work? How does the boomerang effect work? This idea that the way I judge other people is the way I will be judged. Notice in this story, this is chapter 12. It's right after the story of the, in the life of King David, where he was supposed to be off to war in the spring, but instead he was taking a nap up in his room. He sent everybody else off to war. He wakes up from his nap. He takes a walk out onto the balcony, looks over his city, glances down in his neighbor's backyard, and there's Bathsheba, this beautiful woman, and then unfolds. The dominoes fall, and he invites her up, and he has this, this affair that is so infamous, and then she's with child, and then he murders her husband, Uriah, and so forth and so on. And this opened up a window of time in David's life for about a year where he was not walking with God, and he was hard of heart. Okay? And if you want to read, uh, remember that Psalm 51 is David's cry of repentance. If you want to read what David felt like after he came out of this sinful season in his life, read Psalm 51. Well, what happened one day during the middle of all this, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was a prophet, chapter 12, 2 Samuel, verse 1. And he came to him and he said to him, there were two men in a certain city. The one was rich and the other poor. Nathan the prophet is going to tell King David a little story about these two men in the city. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. And it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he has no pity. And Nathan goes, gotcha. You know the story. There's this guy, he's poor. And one day he has this little you and he feeds it and he holds it and his kids love it and they have it up in their bed and it's on, it has its own chair at the table and they feed it food scraps and this little lamb follows it cuddly. It's just the sweetest little lamb and they love it and it cuddles up and he eats with them, sleeps with them and it's just their precious pet. Like one of those worthless poodles. It's just dear to us. And then there's a neighbor that's got all kinds of sheep. He's a big rancher. And then a guy comes to visit and he has to fix a meal for him. And so he thinks to himself, I'm not taking one of my, I don't like this guy very much. I'm not going to fix a meal for him with one of my sheep and lose the money taking it to the market. And he sneaks over to the neighbor with the ewe and he snatches the little ewe lamb and slaughters it and cooks it and feeds it to his guest. And think about what a perfect story this was for David the shepherd boy. And Nathan the prophet, with courage, comes and taps him on the chest. says, let me tell you a story. And David says, kill the guy! So what was his judgment? 
And the kind of judgment that David cast out is the kind of judgment he would be judged with. If you read later in the story, there is a picture of God's great mercy because Nathan tells David, and God is not going to kill you because of this. He's going to be merciful. You see, the kind of judgment that David would have cast out is the kind of judgment that God was going to give him. Only out of his mercy. Are you thankful for the interference that the Lord Jesus Christ runs on all of your judgmental attitudes with our Heavenly Father? Do you see how how big of a fix we'd be in if all the ways that I thought and judged and harshly criticized other people inappropriately, and God did that to me, that if Jesus wasn't running this interference and saying, hey, Bush, put it on me. He, he is kind of an idiot. Don't worry about him. But he's one of mine. He's one of mine. And one day, one day, the sanctification will be complete. Just put it all on my account. Do you have the righteousness of Christ? Are you robed in his righteousness? Are you born again? Have you been to the cross to admit your sin, to receive salvation in Christ alone, so that you are one of his, and now that interference is being run? so that He can show mercy and grace to us. Amen? Wow. Otherwise, our judgment would be the way we judge others. Exactly the way David spelled it out there. I'll tell you what you do with that guy. You kill him! Well, then kill you, buddy. Because you're worse than that guy. Because you went to your neighbor, and you took his wife, and then you took him home from the battlefield, and you put a note in his hand, and he went to his commander, and you told his commander to run him up against the wall of the city and where the battle is the fiercest, and then sneak out of everybody out of there and leave him there, and they drop rocks on him and kill him. And you're a dirtbag, David. You are a dirtbag. And you deserve to die for this. That's how the judgment works. That's what he's talking about. Well, God was merciful... It was a consequence, if you read later in the passage, Nathan tells him, but the child will die. But the child will die. Well, then, back in Matthew 7, and let's finish up. He, Jesus, number three, talks about splinters. Jesus speaks of splinters. Okay, so he makes a statement, he sets a standard, and then he speaks of splinters. What's this splinters all about? Well, it totally fits the passage. This is, this is what the... Verses 1 and 2 are built upon verses 3, 4, and 5. Okay? This hypocrisy and this attitude that we have of judgment. Notice number 1 in verse 3 that we have this problem with magnification. We have a problem with magnification when it's your sin. Okay? So here's a word picture. It's hyperbole. It's nonsense. Why do you see the speck? And the word for speck isn't sawdust. It's sliver. So it's not that it's not serious. You get a sliver in your eye or a twig in your eye. Even sawdust in your eye will drive you crazy. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log? The idea there is for a main beam, like the carrying beam of a house, a joist, a truss, a main big old timber. The idea is translated in ESV, log. So you got the cartoon picture in your mind? Guy's got a big old hunk of firewood sticking out the side of his eye. All right? And it's, he's walking around with this big old log sticking out of his eye. But all of a sudden, he can look in the eye. You got a splinter in your eye, buddy. 
And there's the magnification. Your faults and the things that I don't like about you when I'm a hypocrite and when I am pride-based and when I'm not humble, I can magnify your sin to the degree that I can make your splinter a bigger deal than my log. Isn't that interesting? Magnification, a fleshly tendency to view others as a greater issue, others' problems as a greater issue than my own problems. Um... We do this in our marriages a little bit, don't we? And I don't know which way it works for you, and it probably works both ways. Sometimes the husband has a log in his eye, and the wife has a splinter, and the husband's always working on the wife's splinter, and he's got this huge log sticking out of the side of his face. He needs to just be quiet. But he's got this huge issue with his wife's splinter, or the other way around. Sometimes it's hard, isn't it, to listen humbly and quietly. But this problem of magnification, did you see them? It's so obvious. He goes on in verse 4 to talk about rationalization. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? Here's his point. You're walking around with this big old log hanging out of your head and you want to go up and you want to try to get going working on this splinter. How can you do that? What is wrong with you? How can you cannot see? It's because we rationalize, don't we? And we spiritualize our own problems. So, oh yeah, yeah, I know I got. I know I'm not perfect. You're not only not perfect, you're off the charts, man. And you need to just leave that guy alone because he's nothing compared to you. You know what I mean? It's like. But we rationalize, and we we have these worked out deals with God inside our mind, don't we? Well, I know I got this problem, a little problem here, but God understands and God's a God of grace. He's working on me, but you better get rid of this little splinter. That's his point. And so rationalization, rationalization kicks in and, and we think that they have a bigger problem than, than we have. Notice Jesus calls next for self-examination, self-examination. How can you say to your brother, verse 4 again, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's not that we're not to take the sliver out of my buddy's eye. It's that I'm to make sure I got the log out of my eye first. That's self-examination, isn't it? Notice the end goal is spiritual restoration, then finally. Spiritual restoration. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Let's, let's just close out with Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, and remind ourselves what this looks like. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, and then we're done. Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression... You who are spiritual. Okay, that's judgment right there, right? You're going to go look in the mirror and say, Voila, I am spiritual. I now have a responsibility to go restore this one. No, that would be haughty, wouldn't it? That would be haughty. But do you know that all of us have that responsibility, don't we? And you know, it doesn't come by looking in the mirror and thinking to myself, You're very spiritual today, my man. You need to go correct someone else's issues. No, you know what it is? You tell you when you know you're spiritual is when you're grieving and your heart is broken 
and you see what's going on with your beloved friend, and you think to yourself, they must be corrected. And then something comes up inside of you and says, you can't do that. You're a sinner. You're a dirtbag too. And then you say, but, but God, by your grace, that's all in the past. And you go to them with tears coming down your cheek. And you say to them, you need to be corrected. It's a judgment call, but it's not, it's not I'm spiritual. You're not. It's getting rid of the log. Look what it is. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. Number one, it's to be done gently. Number two, it's to be done alertly. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. That you don't sin just like they sin. Number three, it's to be done lovingly and willingly. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's the law of love. Bearing one another's burdens out of love. Number four... It's to be done humbly. For if anyone thinks he's something, verse 3, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. When somebody thinks he's something, when he's nothing, is when you do look in the mirror and say, I'm really spiritual, I'm going to correct this problem. You're nothing. You're a fool. Let's get rid of the log so we can get help with the splinters. Ah... It's not very fun, is it? Admitting that you either log or have a splinter or something in between. And interesting enough, you can get one out and then you stick another one in, huh? So what do we take away today? First of all, I think one lesson from today's sermon is to mind your own stinking business. What do you think? Kevin, you wear your jeans anytime you want, buddy. It's none of my business. Of course, if that rip gets too much bigger and you start, well, <laughs> then much. It's just not my business. What is my business and what isn't my business? You see, that's spiritual discernment, isn't it? And then, and it's not a sin issue, and it's your preferences, and it's the Bible doesn't speak directly to it. Just be quiet, mind my own business. Number two, I must. Be growing spiritually so that I can exercise discernment. Right? By the way, do you realize how difficult it is and why novices are not called to be elders? Because the elders have to all the time make these judgment calls. That that person's got a problem and we have to talk to them. This person has something going on and we're not going to allow that to happen. It happens all the time. We don't know what to do and we pray and we think and we talk together and we make sure... That we're spiritual in a humble way. I think the third takeaway, not only are we growing in discernment, not only are we minding our own business, but I think we revel in grace today, don't we? Not the kind of grace that looks the other way when sin is present or the gospel's being disparaged. But recognize that it takes a whole lot of grace for the body to be unified, right? Just a lot of grace. It takes grace for me to look in the mirror and get rid of the log. It takes grace for me to hear my wife point out that I got a huge timber in my eye. And I don't want to hear it from her. It takes grace for me to listen to that. Or it takes grace 
for my wife to get the beam out of her eye and to come take a sliver out of my eye. Or for my brother in Christ to come to me and say, brother, you got an issue, man. We need to talk. It takes grace. It takes grace to restore then when there has been issues and things going on, right? And that's what the gospel is all about. And that's how the gospel changes everything. Amen. And it restores our soul. And it makes us whole. And it unifies the body. And the hypocrisy is gone. The spiritual discernment is present, but not a pious, hypocritical judgment. And so, Father, we need to learn this lesson and we need your help. Help us as we process it. Help us to recognize the marvel of your grace. Thank you for these examples in Scripture that we've looked at that kind of bring this teaching alive and help us a lot to picture what's going on here in Jesus' teaching. Just help us to grow from this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.